your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have these Bibles in the pews. We are going to be in the end of Matthew chapter 7, which in the Pew Bible is on page 860. So we have been in the Gospel of Matthew for a little while now, and we're slowly working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you've been with us, we've talked about how Matthew is very strategically organizing his record of who Jesus is because he is writing to a largely Jewish audience, probably his own church. And he writes this book in five sections. And we're going to see, as we go through, we see Jesus give a sermon. And then Matthew talks about what Jesus does. He talks about his actions and his miracles and his interactions with people. And then Jesus is going to give another sermon. And then he's going to do some more action and another sermon, more action. And he's going to do that five times. And that's significant because the Jewish people would have understood their highest authority at this point in time to be Moses. And Moses' story happened in a succession of five books, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is what Moses gave to the people of Israel. And what Matthew is doing very blatantly to his uh, readers is he's saying, this is the story of Jesus separated into five parts because Jesus is just as important, and he'll argue more so than Moses. We're going to talk a little bit about that at the end uh, today, but we've been looking through these little sections in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've covered so many different topics over the last several months. And Jesus has been saying some pretty heavy things. He wants us to take the idea of being a follower, of being a disciple, a student of his, seriously. And he's going to end this message, this sermon, with four illustrations that are designed to help us think about our own hearts and whether we're seriously following Jesus. And Jesus makes this a habit. It's, it's, it's super, it's interesting in, in the culture around us, Jesus is kind of held up as a significant spiritual figure, a teacher, a guru, and everybody loves Jesus because he's so nice all the time. And he is. He's super gracious and merciful, and he forgives, and he includes everyone. But he also has some pretty heavy things to say about whether or not we're seriously following him. Do we take God seriously? Do we take our lives seriously? Do we count the cost of being his disciple? So these illustrations that he's going to give us are going to prompt us to ask four questions about our own hearts. And so here's the first thing that Jesus says in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. So Jesus starts off by saying there is a definitive in-group and an out-group in the kingdom. And this is, um, this is hard, again, for the world that we live in. We don't like the idea that some people are in and some people are out. This is um, not, not inclusive, uh, and inclusivity is an important value for our culture. 
Um, we have made it a very terrible sin to, to disassociate or um, exclude certain people. But Jesus is very clear that there are many people who are not on the path to life. There is a very specific path to follow towards life through Christ. And there is another path that is going in the opposite direction of that. Notice, though, that there's not, there's not exactly a finality here. He says there are many people that are walking that road. And so even the grace of God is present here where you can always turn around. If you're on the wrong road, there's nothing saying that you're stuck there. I've never lived in a large city, but I've visited many, and I've driven in several. Driven in Seattle and Portland and L.A. and I'm usually on vacation or some kind of trip when I'm down in a city like that, and so there's more than one person in my car, and you know what that means? You get to use the carpool lane, which is something that the first time I saw that blew my mind. So living in North Idaho my whole life. And the carpool lane is all the way on the left side. But the scary thing about being a a non-resident in the carpool lane in LA is the realization that I have to exit soon. And I'm four lanes from the exit and there are so many cars. Because see, when you're just driving down the freeway, everybody's going the same direction, everything is fine. But as soon as you flip on your turn signal and try to start going across four lanes of traffic, you get honked at and people flip you the bird and it just gets really tense really fast. And this is kind of like what Jesus is talking about here. The way is wide, the way is broad, and there are tons of people on it. And if you're in that crowd, you just go where it goes. If you've ever been um, in a large crowd, it's hard to get anywhere because the whole bulk of people are just kind of going this way and the easiest thing to do, sometimes the safest thing to do, is just to go along with them. And the thing about the narrow path is not that it's specifically hard. It's not like a little crack in the wall that you have to shimmy through. It's just that you're on the wide path, and to get to the narrow path means you have to go the opposite direction. It means you have to go into traffic. You have to make waves. And Jesus seems to be saying that if we are not actively working against the flow of the culture around us, we're going to be carried away with it. If we just let ourselves do what everyone else is doing, it's fairly easy but it's also the wrong direction. I spent a little bit of time on social media this weekend, and and I very quickly found out that I I need to spend some more money on my wedding or I'm going to regret it. I I will be happier if I get a new oven. I need to buy expensive electronics for everyone on my Christmas list, or they probably won't love me. And also, I am the most important person in my life. And that was like three scrolls in Facebook on Saturday. And these are the messages that we hear over and over and over again. You need more stuff. You need more money. You are awesome. Um, And sometimes, I mean, there's probably a little grain of truth in, in every single one of those. I mean, I might be happier if I had a new oven. I don't know. 
But we get these, we get bombarded with this way of doing life. And Jesus says, if everybody's going that way, it's the wrong way. Jesus doesn't claim that he lays out an easy path. Come to me and everything will be easy. He says it's actually going to be harder if you want to go down the road to life. If, if we are giving out a message of salvation that says, come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved and all your relationships will be healed and everything will be awesome, that's a different gospel than the one that Jesus is teaching. Things might actually get worse if you interrupt the flow of traffic. So the question that I want to ask myself when I read these words is, am I doing what's easy because everybody else is doing it, because it's convenient, because it seems like normal? Or am I doing what's hard because I see the way I'm supposed to live in the words of Scripture and I go against the grain of the culture around me? Then Jesus goes on and says, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce Good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. So Jesus starts out with this idea that there are certain people that are on the inside of the kingdom and there are certain people on the outside of the kingdom. And then he says, and then also there are people on the inside of the kingdom that are lying about it, that are fake, that are false. And this is a warning to all of us because we all let people influence us. We all look to people for spiritual guidance. A prophet would be somebody that either foretells the future or speaks the word of the Lord. They speak with authority, at least some authority, on behalf of God. And so who are we allowing to influence us? We watch people on TV, on YouTube, the radio, podcasts authors of books that you read, if you attend this church regularly, me and Spencer and other people that are on this stage. And Jesus calls us to pay attention to what people say. Pay attention to the way people live. He says, bad character produces bad living. A false prophet is described as a thorn bush, as a thistle, as a bad tree. And that bad tree is not going to produce good fruit. That doesn't mean that we should always be distrustful of everyone, but it does mean that we should pay attention and be on the lookout for the fruit of people's lives. And so what is fruit? In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, And he says in chapter 5, verse 22, he says, The fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that lives inside the Christian, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
And these are not things that we typically think of when we judge the quality of leaders. That guy's church is huge. Or he's such a charismatic speaker. Or look at all the talents that he has. And none of those things are necessarily bad, but they're not what the Bible calls fruit. Fruit is the character, the private character of the person. And you hear it all the time, like someone will have a a hugely effective, amazing ministry, but the people that know him say he's kind of a jerk. There's something wrong with that. Anybody, if I'm going to get up here and teach, if I'm going to get up here as as the, uh, the sinner that has been called to point everyone in this room to Jesus every week. Like, I need to be showing fruit in my life. People need to be able to see, yeah, Zach's not great, but he's getting better. <laughs> like, there, that growth should be happening. And if, there's, if it's not, there's a problem. And the interesting thing about this is that it's, that Jesus assumes that you're going to know the people that influence you. Do you see that? Like, you'll know these false teachers by their fruit, by the grace, by the love, by the peace, by the self-control that they show in their lives. And it is so easy for us. I've got six or eight podcasts on my phone that I listen to on the way to work every day. And they're, uh, I don't know them. I know, I know what they present to me in their podcast. But I, can't, I couldn't tell you if they're kind to their kids or self-controlled, loving to their spouses. I have no idea. There's something to be said for being in community with people, especially the people that influence you. We have small group communities that gather, and the leaders of those communities fall into the same category. Like You should know them well enough to know the fruit of their lives. In a, in a Bible study full of Christians where everybody's just kind of contributing the wisdom that the Lord has given to them, you need to be able to know people and know the fruit of their lives. Jesus says guard against that. But then the flip side of that is, well, what if I'm a false prophet? What if you're a false prophet? What if we're deliberately faking our relationship with Jesus? This is something that is becoming less attractive in our culture. It used to be that it was very important to be a Christian. If you wanted to be a successful businessman, you would be a Christian, so everyone knew you were trustworthy. It is still, um, in certain political races, very important to identify as a Christian because there are certain people that won't vote for you if you're not. But that's waning Maybe you live in a family where everyone is a Christian and you don't really believe any of this stuff, but it just makes waves if you ask questions or put up a fight. So you just go to church and pretend. Maybe you're in a relationship with someone where they're a Christian and you really like them, and so you're going to do this God thing a little bit. Jesus says, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's talking about final judgment. He's, and he's speaking very harshly about people who are faking a relationship with God. It's almost better to just be openly against the gospel 
and say, you know what, I don't believe any of this, than it is to pretend to be following Christ. The second question to ask ourselves is, are we, are we faking our faith? Then Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name or drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So while some people are in the church and they are purposely deceiving the people of God, Others aren't faking their relationship with God, but they're self-deceived. They believe that they are Christians, but they're really not. And for me, this is probably the most scary example that Jesus gives. It's possible to believe that you're part of God's family, and you really aren't. And these people, on that day, Jesus says, on the judgment day, when everyone will stand before the Lord and give an account of their lives, they point out to casting out demons and prophesying and doing miracles. Look at all these things that we did for you, Jesus. Look at all these good deeds that we've done for you. And he says, I never knew you. See, the relationship we have with Christ is the only criteria that matters. And the question that, that I want to ask at this point is, do you know Jesus? But the funny thing is, that's not what Jesus says. The right question to ask is, does Jesus know you? Look, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. And I was, just, I was thinking about that this week we live in a world where we, we think we know people. If you, go to a, if you go to a concert and you see your favorite artist on stage, maybe you, maybe you know you have all their albums and you know some, some stuff about them and, and maybe you have feelings about them. They're just the best. But as they look into that sea of people, do they know you? No. I read this week that uh, Haley Baldwin, who is the uh, daughter of Stephen Baldwin, I think, changed her name on Instagram to Haley Bieber because her and Justin Bieber got married in some secret ceremony. I didn't know this was happening, but my newsfeed said it was important, so it flashed on my phone. And millions of people care about this because they know everything about Haley and Justin and and, and just the intricacies of their relationship, and it's such an amazing romantic love story. And does Justin Bieber know us? No. He doesn't know those 10 million people that are following his new marriage. And so it's easy to deceive yourself into thinking you know someone, but they don't really know you. I used to uh, be a part of a fairly large church. I think we had about 1,500 people at, at one point, and I played the drums. And... Uh, so fairly regularly, I was up in front doing that, and, and so around town, I would run into people, and they'd be like, hey, Zach, what's up? And I'd go, 
nothing, how are you? And, and, you know, fake my way through it because I had no idea who this person was. But they knew me because they saw me on stage every week. Later on, when I, became, when I began teaching as an associate pastor at another church, we had about 200 people in that church. Uh, but as I taught, you know, I, I share stories about my family, about my wife, and about my kids. And so Joanna would go to the grocery store, and, and she'd go like, hey, how are you doing? And, and she would have no idea who these people are. And then they'd start rattling off facts about her life and her, our kids, and she'd totally get freaked out. And she'd finally realize, oh, Zach talked about that at church on Sunday, and you must have been there. Do people think that they know you, but you don't know them? And that's the danger that Jesus is pointing out, that we could read the book about him, and we could talk to people about him, and we could go through the motions and think, yeah, we know Jesus really well, but he doesn't know you. And so the question that he wants us to ask is, are we deceived? Are we deceived. So then, what I want to know, if that's the question I'm asking, is, okay, how do I get to know him? Because I, how, how do I make sure that he knows me? And this is what Jesus moves on to. He says, therefore, in verse 24, and therefore calls back to what he just said, because of those things, therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. And so he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. So what has Jesus been saying? If you read back through the last several chapters, he's been talking about humility and mercy, peace, letting go of anger, fleeing from lust, keeping your promises, loving your enemies, giving generously, developing a relationship with God through prayer, fasting, not being a lover of money, developing trust in God, learning not to judge others harshly, and many other things. Matthew 5-7 through is just chocked full of this completely counterintuitive lifestyle. And almost at every point... As we've studied these things, we talk about anger, or we talk about lust, or we talk about loving people that don't love you back. The the way we end is by saying, you know what? This is impossible. I can't do this, God. I know enough about myself that there is no way I can live this way. The grace of God in each one of those situations is that Jesus comes and gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can live that way. We can be empowered to do these things by his grace and by the power that he gives us through the Spirit. 
And so here's a really stupid analogy, but I think it's kind of funny. 1978, Superman, uh, Christopher Reeve, the quintessential Superman, is he's going to take Lois Lane flying. And he, he picks up Lois and they fly off into the sky at night. And it makes sense that he has to carry Lois while they fly. But at some point during the flight, and I don't know enough about Superman physics to um, understand this, but he takes her hand and he pushes her out like this. And now he's not holding Lois Lane anymore. Lois Lane is flying and holding Superman's hand. The power of Superman is giving Lois the power to fly. And a lot, a lot of people knew Superman. They saw him flying through the sky. Many of them were saved by his abilities. But Superman knew Lois Lane. They had a right a relationship. And this is, this is what Jesus is offering to us. He says, I don't want you to just be someone who hears about me or reads about me or sees the things that I've done. I want to get to know you. I want to be close to you. I want to have a relationship with you. And if that's the case, if we've said yes to Jesus and yes to that relationship, the power of the Holy Spirit, His Spirit lives inside of us and gives us this power to do these impossible things. And so are we people that are oftentimes very slowly, but are we people that are becoming more like Jesus? Are we beginning to see that power in our lives? Are we able to love people that we should have been angry with? Are we able to be generous with our wealth when everybody else says we should be stingy? Are we able to seek peace? Are we able to love These are the things that God empowers us to do. And these are the evidences, just going back to the fruit of the Spirit, these are the evidences that Jesus knows us. Jesus has a relationship with us. There's a few more things, though, that we can glean from this last illustration about these houses. The bummer thing is that the rain and the wind, both houses experience this. Like, I want it to say... The wise man's house, it was sunny there, but the foolish man's house, it got rained on. But that's not how it works. Everybody gets rained on. And if you think about it, that's the whole reason to build your house on the foundation in the first place. Like if you knew it was going to be sunny, there wouldn't be any need to have a strong foundation. But because we know that life brings trial and challenge and hardship, that's the reason why we want to build our house on the rock. That's the reason why we want to invest in a relationship with Christ. So what about this foolish man? Why does he build his house on the sand? We uh, have been remodeling our house for the last three years. and I've done a lot of that work myself. Learned a lot of things from YouTube. 
But there are there have been several times where I have done projects and I've thought, you know, I don't really have the right tool for this or I don't really have the right material for this, but I have this thing over here and a few scrap pieces of that, so I'm just going to make it work. And just about every time that I cut corners, it breaks. And I have to do it again. And it's not because I want it to break. It's just because I want it to be easy. I don't, I don't want hardship. I don't want to have to go back to Home Depot for the third time on Saturday. And I feel like that's kind of what this foolish man is doing. It's just, it's just a lot harder to dig into rock than it is to dig into sand. And it's not that I want my house to fall down, but I don't have a whole lot of time, and I don't really want to put a lot of effort in, and it'll be fine. And going all the way back to the beginning of this passage, the broad road and the narrow road, it's just easier to go with the flow. It's just easier to cut corners. But a life of following Jesus isn't about that. Jesus is... It's it's funny to me that we get this so backwards. We we feel like it shouldn't be the case that life is going to be hard. But Jesus is constantly talking about how hard it is. About how there will be suffering and how you should count the cost. And how living this life is not going to be easy. It's going to be good. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be better than anything you could have imagined. But it's not going to be easy. And so the fourth question that I want to ask myself is, do I hear the word, because I do hear the word, or do I do what it says? Am I a person who takes these words seriously and walks them out in my life? And this is the end of the message that that Jesus, that is recorded here. And then Matthew has this little postscript. He says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like the scribes. So Jesus doesn't speak like the scribes. The Jewish scribes in the first century had this, um, the way they typically taught was they would, they would read the Old Testament, the, the Word of God, and then they would have a list of interpretations. They would say, Hillel sees it this way, and Shimei says it, sees it this way, and Ben-Judah sees it this way, and here's a bunch of options for interpretation. But Jesus didn't speak like that. He, he spoke with authority. He says, you've heard it said this, but I tell you that. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine, my words, he doesn't say, God's words. He says, my words. He, he gives himself that authority. In the story about the uh, deceived disciples, he says, 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now we have 2,000 years of Christian history to give us the idea that Jesus is an important person. But set that aside for a second. And just imagine you're sitting on a hill in this big crowd of people with this guy who you're pretty sure is a carpenter who has no religious training and he's talking about God and about the life of the kingdom and then he says, you know what, when you die, I'm in charge and I will tell you whether you're going to be judged or not. And I'm going to rule the universe. Like, That's crazy. That's insane. And the crowds are blown away by this. And some of them are like, I need to hear more of this guy. This is mind-blowing. But some of them are angry. And we see this this is this group of people that just starts plotting. How do we get rid of this guy? He's popular. He's articulate. He's Uh, everything that we are not. How do I get rid of him? How do we seize power away from him? And this ultimately leads to his execution. Because Jesus acts like he's the boss. Because he is the boss. He's the king of glory. And this whole book of Matthew is this announcement that Jesus, the king, has come to set up his kingdom. People are blown away. See, Jesus never presents himself as a nice option. He never says, here's my thoughts on X. He's very definitive about who he is, about what right and wrong is. We don't get the privilege of just taking some of the things that we like about Jesus and getting rid of the others because we just don't agree with him on that point. Jesus presents himself as the authority. You either take him or you leave him, but there's no in-between. And so at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, we've looked at these amazing these amazing character qualities, these amazing um, commands for the people of God. And we've determined that we can't live up to them without help. Christ in us is the help that we need to live as citizens of the kingdom. And Jesus is going to go on, Matthew's account, to to begin living out this sermon. He's going to begin loving people and healing people and rebuking demons and um, speaking truth. And and all of the things that he says that his people should be about, he is going to demonstrate in the following chapters. But today, as as we just ponder this idea of like, who are we? Am I a disciple? Am I following? Am I going down the narrow road? Am I sincere in my discipleship? Does Jesus know me? Do I have a relationship with Christ? 
not a hard decision to make, but it is a hard life to live. I think one of the reasons that God created the church is because he knew that the world was going to come against his people and that his people need each other for comfort, for encouragement, for exhortation. And so we gather on Sundays, we gather throughout the week, we go out for coffee, we text and call and encourage and and lift each other up because this is the family that he's made us. And we recognize even in the midst of this, this sermon and all of the demands, the commands of God that he puts on us that, that we are all works in progress and the grace of God is just um, pouring out on us every day. But we get the opportunity to help each other along and encourage each other and support each other and pray for one another and love each other. That's a gift that God has given us. And so I, I, I would encourage you as we close, spend a little time thinking about these questions. Am I on the narrow road? Am I, am I walking against the grain of culture? Am I sincerely following Christ? Do I really have a relationship with him? Is the Holy Spirit's work evident in my life? And if the answer is yes, then praise God. But if the answer is no, then change something. Turn around. Make the decision today that you're going to follow Jesus and ask him to get to know you. I want to know you. I want to know you more. I want to know you in my soul. And then every week we have communion. Jesus took the bread and the cup the night that he was betrayed and he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you and my blood shed. And the very real picture here is, is one, it's the remembrance of his work on the cross, right? That, that Christ paid for our sins on the cross through his own death and his the power of God rose him from the grave and defeated death on our behalf. But the other half of that picture is that we take the elements inside of us. And this is the admission on our part that Jesus lives inside of us, that I am one of his people. And anyone who is a Christian this morning can freely take communion as, as a symbol, as a remembrance of the relationship that we have with him. So we're going to sing, we're going to praise, 
I would invite you to um, use this space as you feel comfortable. You can sit or stand. Um, come and take communion um, when you're ready. And spend some time talking to the Lord. Just check up on that relationship. If there's anything that's getting in the way, fix it. Maybe that means repenting, praying, saying, God, I'm sorry. Maybe it means making plans to go talk to someone that you've wronged. It's it's very easy to hear the voice of God when you're sitting here, the music's playing, and it's very easy to forget what he says as soon as you walk out that door. So I would encourage you, if you feel like God is speaking to you to make a change, to get something right, to fix something that's out of whack, be serious about it and act on it as soon as possible. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.